This is Melissa from Irvine, California. Get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, the brutal murder of a college student in 2005 shook Austin, Texas. Now, two journalism students review the case in the hit podcast, The Orange Tree. Plus, a look at the segregation that occurs at one Brooklyn school that's just a lens at all schools when demographics change. We're talking about the number one podcast in the country, Nice White Parents from Serial Productions. Joining me to get that done is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and the one most likely to get enraged by wrongful convictions and injustices, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, about UFOs and our favorite doubting Thomas, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Good evening, Rebecca. All right. So, guys, I know that we complained about this a couple weeks ago. We were doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's freaking hot. Are you all okay? Laura, are you okay? Uh, you know, it's really weird. So, I, I have been sitting on my front porch like constantly for the last two weeks. And it's like I've somehow acclimated to this heat. So, like, I don't notice it anymore. I don't know what's wrong with me. So Ken and I were trying to sit out there yesterday. I was like, hey, come sit on the porch. He goes, oh, it's way too hot. I said, no, it's fine. And he was out there for like five minutes. He's like, I'm going in. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's fine. But yeah, I've been out there because one of my kitties, Felix, has gone on an unauthorized leave of absence. We know. We know. Is he going to be all right? You think he's just uh, taking a little walkabout? Well, here's, here's what I think. So think back to like spring break. And there's a boy who meets a girl who gives him like peyote. And then it's like, hey, you want to go to that like what the Burning f- Man thing? What's this? What are you talking about? Life <laughs> is incredible. Okay. Laura's like, remember that time that you killed I, that person? I feel like this is one of those kidnapping things. It's like, how do you know that you were kidnapped if I didn't, you know, it's like peyote and going to Mexico and dismembering bodies or whatever. Well, the f- no, I'm just, I'm trying to think like the cat. So that's what happened. He was like, hey, this chick gave me some peyote and we went up the street and like, you Happens know. all the time in Catland. Chick's mm. always giving out peyote. I don't know what's going on. He better come home though. But I'm going to tell you guys, I have, this is so exciting. The The positive thing is, A, I found out what's going on with the house up the street for me that has these, this red light on the side of it. Whorehouse. Well, I, I had an, ex- I thought, I said, I've been saying the whole time, I'm like, we have a red light district. What's going on? Does Roxanne live there? No, some old lady does. But I went and knocked on her door and I was like, oh, now I have a way to go knock on her door. I have a reason. I'm like, my cat missing so i'm like hey what's up with the red red light i said like is it because people are gonna hit your house like do you have is there some meaning she's like no we just like lights and i'm like really because like everyone on the street has some theory about why you have a red light on your house so that was a disappointment to me no whores no swears <laughs> no it was like somebody's grandma and she was like a cat person oh my god i just imagine that like somebody's shooting it for the first time and they hear me cavalierly say no whores rebecca they're sex workers 
no, no. So there's none of that. And I also have now video surveillance. And that has been really fun for me to put up video surveillance around my neighborhood and spy on people. All right. Well, I'm glad that that has been fun for you with the video surveillance. I'll have to share, share the tapes with me. All right. Toby, you doing okay in the heat? Quick check in with you. Just want to make sure you're not melting and there's, there's no air conditioning in your little recording office. Uh, yeah. You know, we we were actually spent the first part of this week up on a beach in Maine. Yes. Doing mm-hmm. a socially distant vacation. And it's been hot as all get out. And the first fatal shark attack in Maine history happened 10 days ago. So there's all these restrictions about how far into the water you're supposed to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's been kind of a drag. It's been super hot. And I was actually going to go swimming and this woman was walking her dog and we're on the sort of private area of beach. And she said, I don't, you know, there's no lifeguard here, but they just sighted a great white a mile up the coast and i never got that confirmed but i was like all right screw that yeah no they did i had it on my sharktivity app i saw it it was on your sharktivity yes oh, kevin and i were at uh, at our favorite uh, beach spot last week as well down the coast from you in uh, massachusetts north of boston and so we there, were, there had been a shark sighting right where we were a few days before we got there a great white shark sighting and then there was a great white shark sighting in hampton beach while we were there which is a few miles up the coast and a ton of sharks on the North Shore and the Cape. So many shocks. Mm. So many. We all survived though, right? So far. Laura just gave him a little peyote and we were all fine. Yeah. You're you're fine. You're fine. You just (laughs) punch him in the nose. All right. Should we get to our first review of the evening? How about it? Let's do it. Somehow I found out that it was Colton. I said, I'm looking for Jennifer. I said, "Um, have you seen her? And he said, no. And Michael was on the other line. He goes, that's not right. In August 2005, Austin, Texas college student Jennifer Cave went out with friends to celebrate her new job. But when she failed to show up for work the next day, relatives found her dismembered body in the apartment at the Orange Tree Condos. And it caught me off guard because I'm, I had my flashlight, even though the light's on, I'm like, okay, where's your head? You know, because I thought there were some towels and blankets or a carpet there. And I was like, okay, where is she at, you know? And that's when I realized there was no head. Jennifer's car was found at the home of her old boyfriend, Colton Petanyak. But he and his friend, Laura Hall, had fled to Mexico. As Colton and Laura near the Mexican border, they see flashing police lights in the rearview mirror. But the officer doesn't pull them over on suspicion of murder. Instead, Laura gets a speeding ticket. And the two are getting closer to the U.S. border town of Del Rio four hours away from the crime scene. The new podcast, The Orange Tree, revisits the crime that resonates with college students at UT Austin 15 years later. What makes The Orange Tree different is the seven-part series is not the work of a major publishing house or public radio station. It's written and produced by students at the University of Texas. This look at the cave murder is well-researched, but is it ready for prime time? Well, I guess we're going to talk about, right? (laughs) So let's start with the crime. Jennifer Cave, her body found in the bathtub of Colton Petaniak's apartment, this college rental apartment, and, you know, found by her mom's boyfriend. Her body had been horrifically mutilated after, of course, she'd been missing. Kevin, it's not hard to understand why students at UT Austin all these years later still talk about this murder, right? Yeah, because it's essentially a uh, young person on young person violent act. Uh, you know, a lot of people, when they get interested in crime, true crime, part of it is because 
They worry about the boogeyman serial killers, those sort of uh, invisible people in the shadows, and that strikes up some kind of interest in mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And here's a case where, uh, as our hosts talk about, uh, for people of that age who hang out with people of that age, they, they find it hard to, to fathom that, you know, another 20-something could do that. Right. And the, the you know the the level of violence um, used in this crime is such that yeah people are going to remember it. I think another thing that makes it memorable and an interesting crime story is the dynamics of Colton and his potential collaborator Laura. Uh, now Laura, we hear about you know L- Laura's kind of being obsessed. Good with Laura, him. Laura transition. I'm by the way, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best because she's got a U, Anada yes. L A R A. She yes. does have a U. But we all know Laura. At some point, I'm just going to cost her calling you Laura anyway. So Laura, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> we hear about Laura Hall and Colton fleeing to Mexico right after this crime was committed. And there's a lot of question about her involvement, whether or not she was obsessed with him and sort of following along and just kind of, you know, doing what he wanted her to do just to have a little bit of time with him or because she was also afraid or whether or not she was more deeply involved, perhaps a perpetrator in the actual murder. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that's another thing that makes this story stand out a little bit? Yeah, it's definitely the dynamic between the two of them. And as I was listening to this description of her, you know, going on the run with him and the obsession, I have to say I flash back to my own college days because we all had friends who became obsessed with somebody like this in college. 100%. And I was and I was thinking about... Didn't run off to Mexico? Um, didn't run off to Mexico. I'm not going to tell tales, but I could <laughs> oh, see, I, I could really understand that sort of college dynamic. And he's like the good-looking fraternity guy. He's super popular. And she is wanting any attention she can get from him. So when he needs her help, whatever level of involvement she did or didn't have... You could really see how it played out where she's like, I mean, it sounds horrible. I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's like she's like, here's my opportunity to help him out. And they had these glorious whatever it was, six days. Six days. Yep. Most people can't afford six days in Mexico. Well, they drove there. Yeah. And he had, you know, he had some means. But I definitely could visualize it didn't take a lot for me to sort of grasp that sort of dynamic and that relationship, especially at a college level with this girl really having this thing for this guy and then doing this whatever, you know, I, I still have some questions about who did what, but uh, I could totally see how that played out. Now, Toby, it's difficult for me to just, I think that the podcast is really, um, and I think people in the podcast really sort of point to Laura as a very troubled person. You know, we do hear in her own words that she is very angry. She seems to have a very skewed sort of, version of of not just the case but kind of of the world you know we hear her later in the podcast in those prison tapes and so forth and she's you know got a lot going on uh, we also hear someone else in the podcast mention the first time they ever met her she was burning somebody's clothes outside of his mm. apartment her ex-boyfriend i can't say i haven't done that wait <laughs> wait we're learning so many things is it's non-stop <laughs> laura was like i knew of someone a friend who fled to Mexico in college with their drug dealer boyfriend. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. 
Former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. And certified psycho. (laughs) (laughs) Not anymore. I'm on the up and up now. But, uh, you know, Toby, I do find it difficult. I mean, I am the parent of teenage kids. I've been a teenage kid. I've written a couple of books in which teenage kids were central to crime stories. It does feel in some ways it's tempting to sort of cast them in these big characters, but it also feels kind of unfair because at the heart of it, they are also like undeveloped, undercooked people when they're teenagers. You know what I mean? Like, I feel conflict there. Uh, as far as just evaluating how the, their actions and stuff? Well, well, as far as saying, like, somebody's crazy or somebody's, you know what I mean? Like, that's right. I, that's just a difficult, like, Rubicon to cross for me. Yeah, and I don't even really know exactly what that means. Yeah. Like, just to say, oh, that person's crazy. Like, how do you evaluate that? Like, she clearly, she's making decisions. Yeah. <laughs> That, looking back on it, might not make a whole lot of sense. Because even in sort of the most generous reading of her actions, it's, oh, you know, you murdered this girl and dismembered her. Let's get out of here and go to Mexico together. Mm. Like, let's not call the cops. Let's go on the lam. It's an odd reaction, Mm. you know? Yeah. I would think the first thing is, get the hell away from him, you know? Right. Um, But that, that, that apparently wasn't the instinct. So they kind of, they they do have a theory about what happened that they're putting forward and they're they're putting a lot of evidence there and her sort of response to it is I didn't do it I've done my time I paid my debt to society I just want to move on with my life mm. I wish you weren't doing this um, so you know like a lot of other podcasts I get the feeling like we're getting a pretty good argument for one possible scenario without having the other scenarios really evaluated, which is fine. But it is hard to, at the end of it, say, oh, yeah, I definitely think it happened this way with a whole lot of certainty just because you haven't had that scenario sort of cross-examined by somebody. Uh, It is very relatable, Kevin. We've had that situation many times. We're writing a book, doing a story about someone involved in a crime. And the initial reaction is like, I don't want to relive it. I don't want to go through it again. Like, that was Mm -hmm. common. Mm -hmm. It felt very, rang very true to me. Although she did seem quite obsessed with continuing to send them Facebook messages after saying she didn't want to talk to them, which kind of underscored her former lawyer's take that she is her own worst enemy when it comes to talking to people, right? Yes. She reminds me, uh, again, of other characters we've written about who know it's not good to talk and can't stop doing it. And yet they get uh, a jailhouse interview with Colton. Yes. Uh, That was remarkable, I thought. Yeah. Only interview he's ever given. I got down there and I just wanted, you know, I was trying to be tough. I was, my friend calls it the drug thug thing, you know, kind of the you know, suburban gangster kind of, I liked the, the drug dealing thing because it kind of kept me as like the center of the party, you know? Well, what do you think of him? How did he, how, how do you think that he held himself up? Uh, I find Colton to be a full of fecal matter. <laughs> Take this in the way that I intended. He's not that complicated, right? Mm-hmm. He was admittedly high on all kinds of drugs when this death occurred, including crystal meth among other things, right? He had a defense which confounded me at his first trial where his lawyer, who I don't know why they're going after all these other habeas things when it really should be like the incompetence of the defense attorney who put his defendant on the stand and had him admit that he killed the victim while pleading not guilty in a murder trial. Crazy. Like, I don't get that. But I also don't think Colton is particularly interesting. Did he he plead not guilty? I thought that they... 
pled. That part wasn't 100% yeah. clear. But the whole idea was like, if there was reasonable doubt about first, because they, so the defense oh, was that he wasn't was? in his right mind. He was not guilty because it was first degree murder was the only charge that they would, the judge would allow. Right. So he was pleading not guilty to first degree murder is what was going on. But he was trying to say he, he didn't remember it. Right. 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 Like, right, right. But, yeah. But he, but he was on the stand saying like, I did it. So anyway, that is. No, he said it must have been me. Yeah. That aside. Yeah. His parents seem very nice. He seems like a kid who was nice and on the right track until he got involved with a lot of drugs and is now really grasping at any reason that maybe I am reinventing who I was at that time and that I didn't do it. I find it very unlikely that he did not actually commit this murder. I find it very unlikely. But, you know, that's my opinion. I don't know. I wasn't there, obviously. But, Laura, you you think he's full of doo-doo, caca? Is that what you're trying to say over there? Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. He is full of fecal matter. Yes, um, I was that guy's name at Facebook, right? Who was all censoring this for us? Wayne, helping us with the curses. Oh, Wayne, Wayne. Yeah. he's like, that's right, doo doo. <laughs> Peace out, Wayne. Deuces. <laughs> Sorry, Laura. Hold on. No, that's okay. I just felt like that the portrayal of Colton was somewhat naive to me. Because I felt like it was like we were buying into the Colton is innocent sort of defense. So in listening to him talk and listening to the clips they used of him and listening to his parents talk, like, I don't doubt he was a nice kid before he went, you know, and this this all went down and happened. But I just I felt like listening to him talk in prison, it just didn't sound sincere to me. And I just felt like the BS meter on my like listening to this was like, yeah, mm, no, you know, it just didn't ring true. And I felt like this is where maybe the maturity of the reporters kind of came through where they I think were like, hey, sweet, we got this interview with this guy in prison, where it was like, you know, somebody maybe that had been through this a few times might have been like, so really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I can relate to that, Lar, because I've interviewed somebody in prison and it was the first time I ever did it. And I yeah. definitely yeah. bought a lot of the BS. I definitely did because I felt it was, A, it was exciting to be there and to just sort of interact with this person who had, you know, been convicted of this crime. Yeah. But also I came to realize, because of course I interviewed him for many, many, many hours and my BS meter went up as time went on. People who are in prison meet no new people ever. Yeah. And when you get a chance to meet a new person, whether it's a journalist interviewing you or somebody else, you're going to tell a version of any story that paints you in the most positive light possible because you're like, here's my opportunity meeting somebody new to have them not think that I am a psychotic maniac. And that that's what I heard. Yeah. Um, I was yeah. actually very surprised to hear it was going in the he didn't do a direction. That's I was surprised. You mean the whole thing? Yeah. Well, I didn't think the whole thing. Did. I think it was sort of near the end for me was the whole just, like alternative. I felt like the vibe was that like he didn't do it. Well, I do want to talk about the podcast itself because. Th- uh, we, I have thoughts. That's what we do. Um, the Orange Tree is a podcast produced by two students. They were students at the time. I, Haley actually says a couple of times she was a student at the time. So I think she may have graduated. But the two hosts are Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas. And they are journalism students at UT Austin. And their podcast is part of a larger podcast brand that is actually a student podcast brand. And my understanding is they also got some assistance in putting this out from KUT, which is a very uh, big and well-respected public radio station mm-hmm. in Austin. So this is, you know, primarily a student project. I think judging from the notes I see on my script here, 
that we are in some level of disagreement about the quality of the podcast. But I do want to first throw it out there. And I think that we all agree this is an outstanding format in which to have journalism students practice journalism. Yes. That the reporting itself Mm -hmm. that these two journalism students did was solid. The sourcing is great. They had sources that other journalists weren't able to get at the time of the murder or afterwards. Neither she nor Eddie had ever talked to the media. They ducked past reporters during the trials and have since turned down all interview requests. Until now. We got the feeling that Bridget has been waiting years to talk about her son. Um, Maybe we can argue about this. I think a lot of the writing is stronger than a lot of other podcasts we review, especially the writing in and out of tape. I think about Wondery podcasts and other podcasts that don't do that super well. I think there's some smoothness there. But I do think we should maybe talk about our criticisms of the podcast with the caveat that we all know this is a student-made podcast, and we are not trying to, like, for lack of a better phrase, like, punch down. We want to, like, give it the critique that a hit podcast deserves, but also with the acknowledgement that students made it. Are we all in agreement on that? Yes. No. Big, big caveat. <laughs> Toby's like, no. Toby's like... <laughs> I, I mean, I honestly, I thought about this. You know, I, I, I think it's almost doing them a disservice yeah. by saying, well, we're going to grade you on a slightly different scale because you're, you're young or you're students or whatever. You know, I, I think some of the criticisms of, of it are, are because they're young. But, I, you know, I, I think it's good enough that it can, you know, withstand our usual criticism. So, Listen, I'm just trying to protect them from Kevin. That's what I'm trying to what? do. Right okay. Now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> He's the school bully in the room. No. <laughs> Kevin, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably there, too. But No, I'm- it's Lara. <laughs> it's Lara. All right. Let's get right into it. Let's each talk about something about the podcast that wasn't good. Let's take turns. Kevin, you go first. Okay. First of all, props, though, because the amount of news gathering that these journalists did was fantastic. Yep. So the raw material is there. I wonder kind of, you know, what all that tape would have been like if you were to give it to some seasoned journalists at Wondery or Gimlet or iHeart or wherever else. The audio mix is horrible. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the tech side, I can just tell you, if you are if you have to turn it up and then 10 minutes later turn it back down because it's too loud now, that's just inexcusable as far as an audio format. Okay. And I feel like, can I keep going no, or do I have to stop? Round robin. Oh, round robin. Okay. Toby. Audio mix is bad. <laughs> Toby, thoughts? A thing that kind of turned me off, and I, and I thought it got better as it went on uh, at the beginning, is there is this thing about, they, they say again and again, we wanted to make this sensitively. Yes. Crimes like this one have been explored time and time again for entertainment value. Crime coverage can be sensational and insensitive. Sometimes the true crime genre can reduce a victim's life to their last few minutes. We didn't want to do that. And it's literally like 30 seconds after they've described a headless corpse in a, in a bathtub. <laughs> yeah. And my feeling is just freaking report it sensitively. Yeah. Just be sensitive. Yes. Yes. You don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to say that. I found that excruciating. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that may, I could see that growing out of being in a journalism class. And that's something that you discuss and so you're saying, like, specifically, you want to make that point in the podcast, so you don't realize that you can just kind of let it go. 
But that was actually something that I felt like it kind of had to overcome. Yes, I agree. As I was listening to it. I kept thinking to myself, Toby, like, what adult made them do that? Yeah. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I kept thinking. Like, not, not that they're not adults. Obviously, they're young adults when they made the podcast. But I just kept thinking, like, some professor was like, oh, true crime. What are the pitfalls? <laughs> Make sure you talk about the pitfalls. And I'm like, yeah. some adult... Like made them do that and shouldn't have. I wish there were more adults. Oh, stop it. Yeah. Laura, go. So the thing I had the hardest time getting past with this was this trading back and forth narration thing mm-hmm. that was like listening to a book report at the front of the class. It drove me so bonkers. Inside is a metal table and three chairs. She's asked to sit. There's a video camera in the top corner of the room, which captures what happens next. A man enters the room, Detective Mark Gilcrest. Laura recognizes him. After Colton's arrest, Gilcrest drove to Tarpley to take Laura's statement at her parents' house. I sometimes couldn't follow the story because I was like, oh my God, they're trading. It was like, they're like, now I'm talking. Okay, it's your turn. Now I'm talking. Okay, now it's your turn. Oh no, it couldn't be that because you just said two sentences back to back. It's one sentence, one sentence, one sentence, one sentence. It was like this, we have to be equal, we have to be equal, we have to be fair. And it was so distracting to me that I couldn't follow the story. And I'm like, okay, why don't you say, hey, for this episode, I'm going to be the narrator and I'm going to be the editor. And the next episode, you're going to be the narrator and I'm going to be the editor. Like, it just was so, it drove me bonkers. And I was like, why are you doing this? Because like the story, it was like told in, in this sort of traditional sort of true crime format where we have like, okay, here's like, you know, the background on the perpetrators and the victims and here's the police investigation. I mean, it had all of the right pieces, but I couldn't listen because I was like getting so distracted by this. That works for like a TV anchor setup. Yeah. Where each anchor says one. Sometimes. It's because, because. It's five sentences, right. and they're they're re- they're reading into a TV news package. You know, if they had done more like a paragraph a piece, where you have a complete idea, mm. and then when you shift to a new idea, back and forth, it has to be a reason to switch. Has to be reason. Yes, we it's actually playing ping pong. Nobody does just that. Just so you know, I gave the same critique to a hit NPR podcast called White Lies that we reviewed last year, where there were two I was recovering from surgery. I did not hear that. Okay, so this is one of my biggest pet peeves, and it is a public radio thing. It makes me crazy, and it comes from, I believe, the origin of it and the reason that people think you should do it. It comes from, like, Radiolab, where Mm -hmm. Jad and Robert used to alternate a lot, or it comes from, like, Reply All. But the thing, it sounds terrible, and it doesn't work when there is no reason to do it other than just taking turns. They did it also in Invisibilia, a podcast that, you know, a lot of people love, but just that narration style makes me crazy. So my lesson to, to tack on to Lars was only do it if there is a reason. If one of you reported part of the story, do that. Or just switch different different chapters or sections. But it did come across like, we're being graded on this together, so we both have to be in it the same amount. Um, all right, so my quibble that I'm going to throw on the pile, think of this as like a, 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 a workshop, okay. <laughs> a college workshop. The audio in this, this, the field audio, the interviews, is so filtered. There is this idea, again, when people are making things that they want to sound like public radio, that there has to be no background noise when you interview people. So the audio with the interviews with the parents, they filtered it so much that there's actually an echo in the audio. You can hear the filter. The police have to be measured in their response to those things, which they were. At the time, that was a bitter pill. I said, I know something is wrong. 
They even filtered a clip of television audio when they played news report tape. And I'm like, why are you filtering television audio to make it quieter? It's supposed to sound like it's on in television. If you go to somebody's house and you interview them and there's an air conditioner running or a dog barking, we have listened at this point in 2020 to enough podcasts where we understand you are somewhere in the world talking to people. This idea that things have to be filtered so dramatically to be listenable, stop it. Don't do it. It's actually, for me, incredibly distracting. My, I was is, just that it was too loud and then it was too soft. As is. Sorry, I'm adding another one. There should not be music under every single part of every part of every podcast. For example, when the DNA expert in Colton's trial talked about the grip of the pistol used in the shooting, he said that Colton could not be excluded as a contributor to the mixture. There was music under almost every minute. But you of couldn't this podcast. hear it. Yeah, it was. It was. It was bad. In fact, because when they stop and pause, the music is so low it just drops off. Okay, so now we're just yeah. going to talk about something we haven't mentioned before that we liked about the podcast. Okay. I really like the writing. I said it before. I thought the writing was actually fairly strong. If you get back uh, and beyond kind of the things we just talked about that you're hearing, this is a podcast that is better written than a lot of podcasts we have given good reviews to. Honestly, if you just listen to the way they write in and out of tape, it's done professionally. It makes sense. They do not repeat what's in the tape on either side of it. They say, you know, so-and-so went to this place, and then it cuts to the person saying, you know, the reason I would go there is because of X, Y, and Z. It was really, I thought, well done and very cleanly written. Kevin, go. Um, oh, come on. Well, no, I had it. I gave the one, which was that the amount of news gathering was, yeah. was great. Okay. I mean, they really did a lot of great research. This is a fantastic student project. Mm. It's a With fantastic, a great, name. a great name, yeah. I mean, it really is. It is not prepared well mm. on the technical side which maybe a lot of people don't care about. Maybe they're fine turning the volume up and down and they can they don't mind that there's sound effects of someone knocking at the door. <laughs> or that, the Facebook or that, messenger <laughs> sound effect. Bing! Yeah. In a Facebook conversation, she wrote, I paid my debt for being a young, The Facebook thing. Oh, but then everything is written in the present tense, including the likes and dislikes of a dead person. Yeah. You know, it just, it's like, eh. But I know I'm supposed to be talking about good stuff, but... That's fine. Toby, what do you like about the podcast? Oh, well, I, I kind of like... I actually like the podcast. <laughs> Me too. Um, next. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I thought the flow of the episodes was good in that it does. It kind of... It lays out what happened. And then as you, as you go along, they kind of present their sort of theory about what might have actually happened if what sort of the consensus sort of judicial process... Conclusion: If if that's not right, they've got th this other theory, and then they they basically are able to get in touch with the woman who they think is more involved than than previously known, and go back and forth with her about it, and and kind of have you have a little bit of this drama of her like trying to figure out how much she wants to be involved. Ping! <laughs> but again, you know, it's interesting because while I was listening to us go around and talk about stuff that we didn't like about it, I mean, it's 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 fairly typical stuff. I mean, it's it's poorly mixed or whatever. But as far as the actual journalism and the writing stuff, I thought it was I thought it was fine. Well, I have one thing that is somewhat unique to this. What is that? And it has to do with the with the journalists because they are not seasoned. And the, I, I'm not going to say they're, they're, they're not immature, but they don't have a professional maturity yet. Yeah. And there have been things like, I'm thinking of like Payne Lindsay here, young people who, when they try to portray in their writing a sense of 
wisdom and maturity and experience that they don't have. It just falls really short for everybody else. It seems like like really tone deaf. Like this line about how the, she was into 4-H. It's like, yeah, 4-H. Yeah, I had to look it up too. For you city folk, 4-H is an organization where kids raise livestock to be sold at fairs. Don't worry, I had to look it up too. I'm like, ha ha, nobody knows about 4-H? And it wasn't even the right description. It wasn't right. It wasn't right. That's not what 4-H is. I understand that. <laughs> but I actually do think they do reveal their inexperience a few times in ways that works. I do. I think that they're they... Their inexperience? Yes. You mean their age and their... They they talk about only doing the podcast, for instance, because people still talk about the story. They don't try to... What Payne Lindsay would do, no offense, Donald and Payne, is he would try to manufacture some sort of connection to the case. You know, it's sort of like, I looked it up on Google, but it was only because in my heart I really <laughs> wanted to find, to solve a mystery. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot of manufactured connection to cases, and these two women said, we went to college here, people talk about it all the time, so we decided to look into it. I don't know. I like that. Laura, I have a question for you. Okay. Uh, when you heard that Laura was out on parole, yeah. did you, like me, think, Haley and Tanu, they made me want to look out? I don't mm. mean to, like... <laughs> but I was very surprised to hear she was out, weren't you? Yeah, I was kind of surprised, because at first, uh, that wasn't clear to me when they were talking about, we befriended her on Facebook back in 2018. And I was like, oh, someone must be running her Facebook page while she's in jail. Or she stole a phone. Didn't she only have like five years or something? It was double to 10. Oh. After she fucked up her own second sentencing. Yeah. yeah. So I was I was quite surprised that she was out because I do feel like one of the things that for me, you know, this like going back to what we liked, I'll say this told for me, it was easy to follow. I didn't know about this case. Um, I could follow the case. There was like very clearly designated scenes and chapters and themes, but there was areas I would have questioned more, like definitely like her involvement and how she did get out this soon. You know, although, I mean, I know we've had cases, like I know you guys have that case that you wrote about where I'm pretty sure Kat McDonough's out, isn't she? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that was also surprising. She had a very good attorney, got her a good deal. But, uh, you know, in this case, I, I was a little surprised. So I don't know if I would be worried yet because right now <laughs> they haven't really pushed the envelope to like poke the pig enough to make her like come after them. But you know, it, it was it was definitely a little surprising to me. That person you spent all that time in prison with, Rebecca, is also out. Well, he's uh, yeah, apparently living in a halfway house now. I wish him well. Oh. All right, let's do what we do. I'm going to go around the horn and ask you, panel, what you think of the orange tree from the students at the University of Texas at Austin, UT Austin Journalism School. Laura Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down for you. Uh, I hate being first sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so here's the thing. I think it's awesome that colleges are devoting resources to training like future journalists in the media that they're going to be working in. You know, podcasting is a medium that wasn't even, you know, heard of when I went to journalism school. And it's great that we're working on this. And I think for like we've said for a student project, this is awesome. For me, I just, I had such a hard time with the trading of the narration. It was so distracting for me listening to the whole case that I just, I really didn't like the podcast because of that. And it's hard because I, they did such a great job reporting and they got all these people and they had plenty of information. I think it could have benefited from some editing at some points, but I was just so distracted by that dual narration thing that I'm a thumbs down. Okay, Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down? 
for the orange tree from the journalism students at UT Austin. I thought it was good. It wasn't perfect, but it's the same thing I say about a lot of podcasts. I, I feel as though if a producer had had a slightly heavier hand with, with some of their decisions, it, it might have been good. But they had all the interviews with all the people they needed to. Again, after the first episode, I found it extremely easy to follow. Uh, they did a good job of reporting what happened. They had a theory. They were able to actually have, even though you didn't hear the voice, they had an interaction with the person who they were kind of implicating as being more involved. So again, I, there there's some quibbles, but I, I thought it was good and I would recommend it. So that's a thumbs up. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up too. I liked this podcast. I actually thought it was as good as many of the other podcasts that we give like a thumb sideways, minor thumbs up to. And maybe I'm giving it a couple extra points because it was created by students. I don't care. I mean, I think it's a um, solid piece of journalism. There were some interesting moments in it. The story was decently told. It was pretty straight, true crime. Yeah, lots of lessons that these students can learn. And, you know, I think this project could really benefit from just some more professional mixing, as as Kevin has said. But, you know, I found it compelling. I thought the sourcing was great. Not always the easiest to listen to, but sorry, thumbs up for me. I hate myself for hating this podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> It's got a good it's, name, though. It does. It's got a great name. <laughs> the, 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 the news gathering is really great. It's a real you know, prime rib, and they ended up giving us some hamburger when they were done with it. <laughs> Look, I think that it came off sounding kind of amateurish, but I will say, when I think when these journalists are a little older, 10 years from now, they're going to look back, they'll find the problems that we had with it. I'm not crazy about the books I wrote 10 years ago when yeah. I look back at it. To be fair. To be fair. Yeah. You know, get much more critical of the things that you could have done better. I feel the same way. This is my review, Rebecca. <laughs> Sorry. I think that these uh, two journalists have a great future. I would hire them in a minute. I would have taken this stuff and had somebody with a little more experience guide them, not just with the story arc, but with the actual writing and the presentation. It, it certainly overperforms as an amateur piece of journalism, getting the top 10 charts or, you know, whatever. It's a fantastic achievement. It's a wonderful resume tape. I'm just not finding it a really great professional podcast. So is that a thumbs down? <laughs> it's a thumbs, thumbs down. down. Yeah. <laughs> you always told me to say it at the beginning and you didn't do that. <laughs> Speaking of people who never heard anything about 4-H, Patrick Hines. Um, never. Oh, my God. That's the best. Never, never, never. <laughs> never has he ever. Patrick, uh, who does not have a goat uh, or a cow, uh, does have a new podcast that we want to tell you about. Yay. It's called Obsessed with Disappear. Ooh, it does he now. Yeah. No, like you didn't know this. I know all about it. Uh, Patrick's new hilarious true crime obsessed podcast is made with his best friend of 20 years, Broadway diva Ellen Marsh. Yes. And this is Obsessed with Disappeared, mm -hmm. a true crime comedy podcast that tells the stories of missing people by recapping episodes of Investigation Discoveries Disappeared. Disappeared. Uh, just like True Crime Obsessed, the episodes of Obsessed with Disappeared are hilarious, but they never find the humor at the expense of the victim or the crime. Just Patrick <laughs> and Helen. <laughs> by the way, you want to hear a podcast that's produced by a college student? Yes, literally. Henry Lavoie, our handsome line producer, is also employed here by Patrick. He is the line Putting, producer yeah. of Obsessed with Disappeared. And all the levels are good. All the levels are great, and... 
his like sense of humor really comes through. I gotta say, I'm very proud of you, Henry. You've made this podcast a hit. Yeah. It has nothing to do with Patrick and Ellen. No, no. <laughs> Although I will say, guys, sometimes Henry is working, you know, at the table with the headphones on. He's going, click, 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 click. And, and all of a sudden I hear, <laughs> through his headphones. Because he's just laughing. It's Patrick. I know, but laugh. then Henry will also laugh while editing. He will. Obsessed with Disappeared is an easy listen. It's hilarious and informative storytelling from two best friends who truly love each other and will do just about anything to make the other one laugh. So if you're fascinated by cases of missing people and you're serious about true crime, but also love to laugh, you'll love Obsessed with Disappeared. Find Obsessed with Disappeared where you get your podcasts, which is probably how you're listening to this right now. (laughs) Moving on. Before we tackle our second review, let's get a little business done. On today's Patreon After Show that dropped at the same time on this podcast, each of us is going to be making a summer book or TV recommendation. We're going to be sharing what we've been loving reading and or watching. And Kevin, speaking of Patreon, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Yes, our Patreon patron saints are Allison Barber and Jamie Guthrow. Bless you. <laughs> Allison is a big member of the Brichter Scale group yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I love Allison. Yeah. Well, Allison and Jamie and everyone else who supports us on patreon.com slash partners in crime media will get the after show plus a brand new Toby Balls Deep Dive Book Club podcast plus a brand new Leave It to Bricker podcast. Plus, Kevin, I believe you and I will be putting out a Married with podcast like later this week, right? Absolutely. There's lots and lots of stuff at our Patreon. So head on over to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And maybe you can be the Patreon patron saint of the week some week soon. Maybe. Just maybe. (laughs) If you're lucky. (laughs) All right, moving on. They were dogged, these white parents. Lobbying the city at meetings, writing letters, saying don't build it there. It will inevitably be a segregated school. The Board of Education agreed, changed the entire plan, and located the building where the white parents wanted it. A few years later, the school finally opened. And then, none of them sent their kids there. One of the most powerful forces in public education are parents, particularly white parents, who leverage their finances and influence to improve the quality of their kids' schools, especially if they're entering a school previously regarded as, quote, disadvantaged. The numbers were stunning. In 2014, there had been 36 graders at SIS. In 2015, there would be 103. That 200% increase was almost entirely white kids. But what happens when parents say they want their children among a diverse student population, but end up making the educational experience all about them? Rather than lifting the quality of learning for all, you create a separate but not equal education for the Black and Latinx and international students who were already there. And some of the new parents so have, have an more, idea. No, have a they propose a formal and, separation, uh, the PTA and the so people doing fundraising. Rob says this way there'd be two organizations collecting money for SIS. From Serial Productions, nice little obscure production house, comes <laughs> Nice White Parents. Host Hana Jaffe-Walt looks at one Brooklyn majority-minority school where a new bunch of white parents believe they are increasing opportunities for everyone but are actually committing educational gentrification. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for nice white parents. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. 
Now, this podcast feels very, very timely, although I know Hannah Jaffe-Walt has been reporting on education for a long time, and a long time at this school in particular, but she also produced some very high-quality This American Life stories about uh, schools and education as well. So, she won a Peabody Award. Yes, this is not a new topic for her, but the lens of this particular school is a new topic for a lot of white people. Let's be real. That's for us who it's for. It's for us. Mm-hmm. It's about us. And it feels incredibly timely right in this moment. Does it not, Laura Bricker? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just so timely. And I know this has been, you know, obviously this has been researched and reported for a long time before it came out. But my goodness, um, the timing was incredible, especially with everything going on. I mean, I don't know about where you guys are living, but like my own school district is in the middle of just turmoil right now. And listening to this, it was so familiar on so many levels. And it was it was a really good listen right now. Yeah. And you're a nice white parent, right, Laura? Oh, yeah. I mean, we are. We we it, it would be a lie to say you cannot listen to this if you're a white person. If you don't feel bad, there is something wrong with you. And you also have to completely acknowledge our role, our individual roles in this exact system. Right, Laura? Absolutely. Actually, that was like the first thing I said. I, I saw a friend and I said, um, I'm listening to this podcast called Nice White Parents. And I think it's us because both of our kids are at this charter school and we moved our kids to the charter school because our regular school was too big. And then we got over there and we're like, hey, they need help with fundraising. We should start a parent group. And then we start. And I was like, oh, God, it's me. It's me. You're Rob. Your podcast villain, Rob. And I was like, and I work in fundraising. And I was like, I can get you some grants. We can get a music program going. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It is me. But it's good to acknowledge that that's you. I I completely agree. One thing that um, I just want to say here, I've said this on social media. It's true. Listening to this podcast hurts. And it should. And it is also the reason why I quit the parenting podcast I used to be on with Slate. It actually pointed to a lot of the reasons why I quit because I found myself becoming so angry, (laughs) fielding the same questions over and over again, which were essentially, I am a well-meaning, not racist white person who's raising my kids in a really diverse community. And I'm really proud that they have black friends and brown friends. And it's time for them to go to school. But you know what? The school across town has like way better test scores. But I know we'd be losing something if we didn't send them to the local school. Does it make me a bad person and or a bad parent if I send them to school across the town instead? And isn't it bad that they will no longer have black friends? I would just find myself becoming so angry, <laughs> getting the same question over and over again. Like, you are the problem. Like, you know where the power is and you're not using it because you have this fear that and you also have this feeling that your kid deserves things that other kids don't deserve. It is so tough. And I just found myself getting really angry and that anger coming back when I listened to this. It felt timely and also just really, really good for us to be listening to right now. You know what also kind of makes this a fresh look because it's a slightly different look? It's not about white parents abandoning schools that are now overrun with students who look different from them. And it's it's about sort of that idea. Yeah, if I come, if we, if we do the opposite, if we bring our white kids and give them this experience, it's going to change them. But in essence, the parents go and change the environment. Yes, Without even realizing. Or asking. Or asking. And I thought this was really great. I mean, there are parallels in every school where you have the sports parents and the theater parents, and they want to advocate for their kids. 
But what they actually end up doing is creating a different kind of system within the school. And it's worse if if instead of being the sports parents, you are the white parents or the white savior parents or whatever the hell you want to label them because they come in thinking that they are creating opportunities for all. (laughs) <laughs> but really what this demonstrates is, wow, I thought they would be creating opportunities for all and bringing in money and all this other stuff. But really what they've just done is created a school that is both integrated yet segregated. It's not integrated at all. It's segregated. Not just the student level, the parent level. Yeah. I want to talk to Toby about this because Toby, as we know, had an, some experience teaching in public schools. Toby, this is a really complicated issue. And the podcast doesn't hold back on including a lot. It doesn't dumb it down. It doesn't try to like, it doesn't cut every episode down to 37 minutes. Like these are hour long episodes that take deep dives into complicated story and complicated issues. What do you think about the this podcast reporting approach to this topic? It's thought provoking. You know, I, I think so far that it's doing a really good job and then it has you for every I think step that you take in one direction, there's some consequence that you might not see. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So you've got parents coming in and thinking, well, why don't we make this school like elite in this certain way with the theory that that will be good for everybody, but it's not. It's good for certain kids and it'll attract those certain kids for who it'll be good for. But the people who've been there the whole time are suddenly marginalized in their own schools. You know, they, they talk about desegregating schools or not having segregated schools. You know, that is an admirable goal. And I think it's something that should happen. But the idea that that in and of itself is enough is clearly not true. And that it has to be done with a lot of sort of sensitivity and intentionality. And I think it requires people to have a kind of empathy and willingness to take chances with their kids. And I don't mean like physical chances or chances that are going to mess up their future, but in terms of having a kid have an experience that's not exactly the way that you would perfectly envision it. Is this making any sense? It's making sense. Basically what you're saying, and let me like paraphrase for you, is this is this idea. This is why like one white family won't send their kids to a black school because they feel like I'll be the only ones, right? Mm -hmm. And it will be hard for my kid and it will be different and it won't have the programming. Was the tipping point is like 26%? Right. So 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 what they do is they create a this like you know like this cohort of families to lessen the you know the the the, the feeling of risk now the the question that is so interesting that gets raised and and just so you know we are going to mm-hmm. talk about the characters in this podcast in a minute i promise as i think it's the best part of it but the question that gets raised at one of the beginning of one of the episodes i think it's the beginning of episode 3 is this idea and it gets raised by a black scholar of why is integration the answer the integration is the answer because of racism. Integration is the answer because white people bring power with them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the real answer should be that if there's a community that happens to be all black and the kids of that school are black, that school should be getting the same resources and have the same programs as a school in a neighboring community that's all white. But it doesn't. The only way to make it equal is to bring people with power in. And that's inherently racist, but it is just the way that it is. It is so complicated. And it adds to that dynamic a lot 
Um, but Kevin, like one of the the peak examples of this, which I got into some debate about on social media, is this French program mm-hmm. that these white parents want to they, they make a deal with the principal if if we bring our hundred and three families and are you willing to start this dual mm-hmm. language French program because my kids that is other school. We hear the program is actually sponsored by France and the French Please. attache yeah. and embassy. So it's like a state-sponsored program that, you know, they could be lobbying for any school. Yet, we all know, I mean, and there are some expat French people in the school, but we all know why the white parents want, the ones who are not expat French people, want their kids to be in this program. And it ain't because they think French is a super handy language that'll help them get, you know, communicate with people in America. It's like snobbery right well look I, i'm not gonna knock a canadian because he wants his kid to learn french nor am i gonna put down you know the french cultural attache because that's his job he right. comes to america he wants to do the pr and spread you know the word because they love culture although because of the french reputation for snobbery it makes it's the perfect MacGuffin. it is for starting this whole discussion but there it, were bilingual kids in that school who there spoke are arabic yeah, and right. spanish and they were right. not treated like bilingual right. kids right but it also could have been that father had a podcast yeah and they wanted to do a podcast program yeah it could be or whatever it was that they came in they had they were they were a special interest but they were a special interest right that had the wherewithal to raise money to do those things and again doesn't sound like he came in saying look here's a place where the existing people don't have a lot of power and I can come in and I can bulldoze my way through and I can get my will and change it Rob yeah but but that kind of happened of course it in did in a nice in a, in a very gentle a well intentioned but way, super racist way but yeah in a way that it's just cultural colonialism yeah that's a good way to put it Laura Rob go well it's fundraising and so I re- I've worked in fundraising for five years well not anymore because I was laid off but before that I worked in fundraising so a lot of what Rob was saying rang very true to me and I didn't perceive it as him like being racist or anything like that. I perceived it as him having a more sort of savvy understanding of how to attract donors that might donate to a certain program, not necessarily because they had any interest in the school, but they liked a certain thing. And so you can cultivate donors to donate to causes that are near and dear to their heart that might benefit the school. So listening to that part, I just, I definitely recognize just sort of the professional fundraising the world. tactics, yeah. But I definitely, having been in that position myself, you know, like I said, with my son's school, where I came in and tried to assist with their fundraising, because they, they really did need help with fundraising. Um, and there were, it was like the similar dynamic where I was like, well, we can get grants. And then there was this guy who was like, we're going to have a carnival and sell popcorn. And I was like, mm, that's not going to raise any money. It's different if you're raising money to support what's already the there. The whole school. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They're to, not raising money to support something to, that to bring wasn't and see, We can do something different ends up changing the dynamic. That the kids didn't ask for. And the kids didn't ask for it who weren't there. And they don't want it. The parents don't want it. It was in the book of statuses, Rebecca. <laughs> book of statuses. <laughs> I think Rob is a villain. I'm not going to lie. I think he's a villain. And I think that woman, Barbara, at that party who approaches my heroes, Imi and Maurice. Imi is the biggest freaking hero in the history of podcasting. She is like the Rabia Chaudhry of this podcast. The patient saint. But that see you next Tuesday, Barbara, who's like talking to Imi. Have you been to Paris? It's really best at this time of the year. There's a good place to drop a clip. Are you pleased with the program? Yes, I love the school. It's so important to learn another language. It opens the world for you. And uh, what is your name? Hannah. 
Anna, I was just telling Anna, when I go to Paris, which I do every year, it is cool, and it's cooler because I can speak the language. You know, but with something, one thing that she said, though, is actually true, which is that you know, knowing the language gives you entree. Now, she's talking about French, the right? The market in France. Right, but it's sort of knowing the language, whether literally the language or sort of understanding the cultural stuff, gives you entree into society or to better opportunities that the people who are the native Spanish speakers and the other folks in that school who are not in that French program, right, they want an opportunity to have entree into a larger world as well. But they are not getting that because the attention French is French is not going to help them get there. Let's be real. No, I mean, it's a special interest. It's a small thing. I'm it's- telling you, all those rich white kids would be way better freaking off learning Spanish than they will be learning French. Way better off. I think right now we should be <laughs> dropping a clip from Better Off Dead. <laughs> French fries, French toast. Dressing? French Toby fries? had something he wanted to say. I heard him down there. What's going on with you, Toby? Well, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's, it's sort of obliviousness. I think, and again, it's, it sort of exemplifies, I think, white privilege. And it's like, oh, we're going to come into the school and we're going to remake it into what we want it to be. And this group of, as they say, nice white parents brought their kids there to kind of change the nature of things. I think probably. In their mind, if they're at a cocktail party and they're talking about, you know, what effect that they've had on the school, they probably see it as being really, really positive. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, we're bringing in this like high level curriculum and their scores are going to go up and, you know, that'll bring up property values or, or whatever. That's what it's about, Toby. That's about that's what it's about. Status. It's literally like we heard like middle school kids, these white kids talking about how lucky these black and brown kids were that they arrived. The kids wouldn't pay attention and they had like got to like zone out every little thing. And I bet they learned very little. And now with this, now this generation with us, I think we're doing a lot better. And I think that we're learning at a much faster pace. I think it is actually harmful in some ways. And I'm going to disagree with you, my love. Mm-hmm. I think it is harmful sometimes to say that these people are oblivious. They're well-intentioned. They didn't mean this. It doesn't mean it's not racist. It doesn't mean I, it's not I never, cool. I agree with you. I, I never that. said that. I yeah. know that. But I, I just, I, I do, I have, I actually think Rob... Maybe he doesn't mean to be a villain. Doesn't mean he's not a villain. And that yeah, lady, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I honestly feel that way, and I hate him so much. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Rob gives a toast about that time he went on the overnight trip. It starts off okay, but then veers into strange and sort of cringy territory. He's on a ropes course, forty feet up, looking down. Um, below me were was that diverse group of kids. They were. Diverse kids belaying me, making sure that I, when I jumped, that it would actually cushion my fall. That day, each of those kids was going to climb up that pole and was going to have the same opportunity and the same challenge. And it made me think that that's what this school is about. It's about the opportunity to do the International Baccalaureate, the challenge of it. It's about the opportunity to explore French and the challenge of it for all kids. Laura, what did you think about Aimee and her husband, Maurice? I loved them. Me too. Yeah. No, I, they were like, you know, involved in the school, wanting to know what was going on. I could relate to a lot of what they were saying as well as I was listening because, I mean, there's time, you know, I've been like a room parent and I've done a lot of things in the schools since my son was little because for the same things they were talking about, they want to know what the kids are doing in class. They want to get to know the teachers. They kind of want to get to know 
the culture. And so I definitely could relate to them. And I, you know, like you said, I definitely thought they were sort of the heroes of the podcast. But I wanted to just quickly mention one of the things that this really made me think about as I was listening to it, just overall was, again, back to this time that we're living in. And like in our school district, not the district that my, you know, my son's school, but like where I live here in Exeter, our school is going to be remote, our school is going to be in person. And then if a school goes remote and people want in person, again, it's sort of stacking the odds against the people that have to work, that have two parents that work, that aren't able to stay home with their kids if their kids are remote. And one of the things that this was really making me think about is I'm watching as our schools here have decided to go remote, the people that have means are now like forming these little pods with other families and they're hiring private tutors and they're doing like these little homeschool neighborhood things. And I'm thinking, listening to this, you know, discussion about this school and how, you know, the parents with power are able to get what they want we are going to be seeing like nationally now this same theme playing out, but on a much larger scale with regard to, you know, the people that are able to stay home and work from home are going to be at a better advantage perhaps, or the people that have more money are going to be able to like hire these private tutors so they don't have to send their kids into school. And the people that are working, what are they going to do? I'm going to be curious to see if the podcast touches upon sort of the current times um, as it relates to this over, sort of overarching theme. Kevin, great tape, I think, Hannah Jaffe Welk gets, mm-hmm. going to the Historical Society, getting the old letters yeah. from the 1960s that all these nice white parents wrote. The Board of Education Archives. Begging That's a really for an integrated yeah. school in their neighborhood. Begging, because that they want their kids to have that experience. And when she tracks them down, one of them is like, no, I didn't send my kids there, don't really remember why. And the other one is like, Yeah, I never intended to send my kids there. I just said that because it was politically correct, but I didn't believe any of what I said. But it just seemed as if most of the black kids, you know, didn't really learn learn to read. But But part of, I mean, part of the vocal complaints of black parents at this period of time was that their kids were not learning how to read because schools were segregated and their kids were kept in schools that were inferior. And that was part of the argument for integration. Yes. Yes that their their kids were not going to get the resources and quality teaching and good facilities unless they were in the same buildings with kids like yours. Right. I don't know what to say to that. I thought that was extraordinary tape, extraordinarily honest interviews that point to, as that episode does, the repetition of this cycle of well-meaning white people saying they want one thing actually doing a thing that isn't that thing. To this day, Mayor Bill de Blasio will not use the word segregated when mm-hmm. it comes to these schools, but it's not new. What did you think of that whole sort of historical arc and the tracking down of those it was, nice white people? It was great context, especially to learn how that school came about, because it seems like, again, that it was the interference of well-meaning, nice white parents that put the school three blocks in, the, in a different direction. Yeah, from the Could black put neighborhood. It, put it closer to the edge of the white neighborhood because say, because white students will come to, and the parents didn't stand any white students. And now the school is farther away from the black neighborhood that it was meant to service. And there's no playground, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? it's just, It just was, you know, a, a piece of the story that was missing 
that they put in, the historical context of how that school got there, and the fact that, yeah, people said they were going to send their students, but to follow up and say, yeah, they didn't. Yeah. Some went to The lady who school, started moved, the international but, school didn't send her own kids there. Yeah. It was her project. Yeah. It's insane. And, and now again, you have, you know, white parents who are trifling in the school again, and now marginalizing, again, the black and brown population that relies on that school. Yep. So God bless Hannah Jaffe Waltz because she spent years reporting this. Yeah. Years. I mean, it's just, it's she just a fantastic white people for all. She those went years. to PTA meetings, <laughs> like a local for a school she didn't reporter. have a kid in. She probably didn't go to her own kids PTA meeting. <laughs> I've never <laughs> been to a PTA meeting. Oh my God, never been. Hey, but the best part, the best part of journalism and stuff like that is to actually. Being there. Yeah. That is the lightning, the serendipity of being there. And she was there. That's serial. That's serial. That's This American Life. Yep. This is just a giant This American Life story on steroids. Cannot be contained by public radio. Well, it has to be five hours. Well, I think that's probably where we should cue that we do what we do and let our listeners know, should they check out Nice White Parents, the brand new podcast from Serial Productions, newly acquired, as we hear Sarah Koenig say, should we listen to Nice White Parents? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? I would say a big thumbs up. This is, like I've said super timely, super relevant in terms of, you know, as everybody is discussing education all across the country right now and access to education um, as we're living in a pandemic for those that have means and don't have means. And this is really well researched, really well told. I love the behind the scenes at the PTA meeting. And it's just, I think, a really interesting story, a really important story. And it's really well done. Toy Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Nice White Parents from Serial Productions? Yeah, I definitely give it a thumbs up. I, it's, a, it's a nuanced, complicated subject. And uh, we're only three episodes in, but they're doing a, <laughs> a nuanced job of it. So yeah, really good. I'm looking forward to the rest of it. Kevin Flint. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. You know, like we said, this is from Serial Productions. And those podcasts seem like an event whenever something comes out from Serial because there's so few, right? I mean, we don't say, oh, great, another podcast from Wondery. Um, <laughs> no, we go, oh, great. Oh, great, another podcast from Wondery. Uh, but... They've only put out podcasts that either are called Serial or S-Town. Right. So this is a uh, a worthy companion to its brother and sister podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, great way of looking at this issue. Again, zooming in so you can zoom out. Where have we heard that before? Looking at this one school and to talk about, you know, the effects in a way that are not brutal and obvious and violent, but in a way that are subtle and insidious and well-meaning but pernicious. Hmm. Uh, it is the idea of gentrifying a school, uh, whether they mean to or not. And if there's one thing that I have learned, taken away from the Black Lives Matter movement that speaks to me, is that white people, you think you know, you don't know. Right. You really don't know. Right. And so here's a great example that where these people can be shown through an independent arbiter, the microphone of Hannah Jaffe Walt. Look back. This is what you've done. Yeah, maybe you didn't mean to. But this is what you ended up doing at this school. And if you really wanted the diversity, you ended up trampling it. So this is going to be another legendary podcast from Serial Productions. Big thumbs up.
I'm giving it a thumbs up too. I do love the time that White Parents is taking with this story. I think it would be very tempting for a lesser podcast, a less well-reported podcast, a lesser told podcast to cut a bunch of scenes and characters and people and history we get in this story. One of my quibbles, and I was talking about this with my uh, work wife and podcast creation partner, Maureen McMurray, this week is I did love how bad I felt after episode one and during episode one, that Mm -hmm. pain. And I do think that Hannah steps away from that pain in episodes two and three, sometimes a little too much. I wanted more of that feel bad feeling. And I think there could have been some minor restructuring to help with that. For instance, I may have put all the historical stuff in a tight package Mm -hmm. and then gone back um, to the the current day, people talking about their old Gowanus school. Um, Just stuff like that, just like mild structuring quibbles because each each episode does feel like a giant long magazine article. And the first episode is so almost perfect. And then the pain I felt as a, a white listener, I loved that. I loved it. This all could have stopped after the consulate scene and been on This American Life. Oh, hell yeah. And, and we would have heard well, this was. years ago. I actually think they did air oh, really? this at the episode of This American <laughs> Life. Hack one, je ne sais quoi. Hack <laughs> <laughs> two, how do you like me now? Hack <laughs> three, everyone uh, needs to go to Paris. <laughs> Paris. That's right. A woman shows up at a consulate. <laughs> And then Jonathan Goldstein meets her in Paris for lunch. <laughs> they have croissants and entrees. <laughs> it's an entree to the city. It wouldn't be Jonathan Goldstein. It would be David Sedaris. David Sedaris. Who actually lives in Paris. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just enough for the podcast. We bleeped out a few words. In the... <laughs> Ira. Sorry, I hijacked your... Uh, you did. You, you did. Uh, you anyway, hijacked mine. Yeah. Uh, tiny quibbles about just how I would have structured it. Otherwise, it's a nearly perfect podcast. Huge thumbs up for me. Well, now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. week. There are great chase scenes. The French Connection, Bullet, and Baby Driver. But nothing as great as this chase witnessed by dozens of sunbathers in Berlin last week. A nudist was seen running after a wild boar and her piglets who had just stolen his laptop. At this particular lake, where both nudists and wild boars apparently are common, the animal had been lured by the smell of pizza and scooped up a yellow bag which contained the computer. As for the nude sunbather, let's just say he doesn't look like Steve McQueen nor Ansel Elgort. You know what I mean, right? (laughs) People on Twitter know what I mean. There is a happy ending, though, for the naked man. The boar eventually dropped the laptop and made her escape. For the rest of us, the photographer caught the whole thing in a scene that will really challenge Facebook standards and practices team. (laughs) Sorry, Wayne. (laughs) All right, so panel, (laughs) the board knew what she was doing. What was she going to do with that laptop? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, I think the board was booking a one-way ticket out of that nudist colony to a place (laughs) with more pizza. I see. Mm. What do you think, Toby Ball? What was that boar going to do with that nudist's laptop? Uh, I think it was going to leave a Yelp review. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin Flynn, what do you think? It's going to log on to (laughs) Porkhub. Trade some nudes. (laughs) Update a relationship status. Now seeing someone fatter than me. (laughs) All right, Laura Bricker, we should probably wrap it up there. But before we do, do we have a cat of the week this week? (laughs) 
We do. And first, I would like to mention my favorite new podcast, which relates to cats. It's called Talking About Cats with Dominique. Yes. And he is seven and he's allergic to cats and he is adorable. And like, I want to be his best friend in real life. And I would highly recommend you listen to the three-part episodes. It's a trilogy about old Noni getting a cat named Michelle. Very cute. <laughs> old Noni. The cat went in the shower and it wouldn't get out. That's a spoiler, but it was very cute. Huh. But this week, Katie Graves has sent in a lovely photo that I just I was very much drawn to. It says, my dog Hopper chased Gilly the goat into the house and Gilly is hiding behind the drum kit. Gilly. And I, I was partial to this because I, I had a goat growing up, Rufus the goat, of you did. who also used to occasionally run into the house, <laughs> Rufus the goat. And uh, Did you give some- it peyote and kidnap him bring- and take it to Mexico? <laughs> did you bring him to 4-H? <laughs> no, we didn't bring Rufus to the 4-H. He was very, he used to chew my hair when I wasn't paying attention. But this is a great picture of uh, her goat, Gilly, who was standing Next to the drums by a Beatles poster. Nice. No peyote for Gilly or Rufus. Wow. All right, Laura Bricker, folks want to reach out to you and pitch their goats or perhaps dogs or perhaps cats or any kind of animal to be Cat of the Week. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and tell you all the times they saw sharks at places that were like 100 yards from where you were vacationing. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and really commend you on your like eight levels deep wokeness that I am like so excited about for you, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie, or you can follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. You can watch this very podcast on our new show produced exclusively for Facebook Watch. You can find it now by searching your app or at facebook.com slash watch slash Crime Writers On podcast. And I encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stand Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where the French consulate has zero interest in holding a fundraiser. On behalf of all of the crime writers, all of us, thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll catch you later. Uh, Check, check, check. Uh, Kevin, can I just do a level check with you? Because your voice. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, This is Kevin Flynn. And this is Rebecca Lavoie. Okay. And this... His crime His crime and we okay. are wild stallions. Right. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> There's your outtake, Henry. Okay. <laughs> Partners in, in crime, crime media. media.